This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. I'm so excited about this podcast today. We're going to talk about behavior as communication. And our guest today is Sarah Wayland. She's a certified RDI consultant and a special needs care navigator at the company she founded, Guiding Exceptional Parents. She got her PhD in cognitive psychology from Brandeis University, but her most valuable training comes from parenting her two wonderful boys, both exceptional Her special needs navigation services are designed to help parents learn how to confidently and effectively help their children. As an RDI consultant, Dr. Whalen works with parents to show them how to teach their children the essential skills that make relationships work. I'm so glad to have you here today, Sarah. I'm very glad to be here, Penny. Thanks for inviting me. You and I have some history together. We have known each other for quite some time through the Happy Mama Conference and Retreat, and I knew from that that you would be a great guest for the podcast to really share with parents the importance of looking at their child's behaviors as communication and the valuable insights that that really will give them in order to be able to manage and even positively change some behaviors. Do you want to give us just a quick introduction to why behavior is communication and what that might look like? Sure. Uh, The first thing I want to say is that one of the reasons I love that mantra, behavior is communication, is because so often we focus on the behaviors themselves rather than thinking about what led to the behavior in the first place. So I actually, that that mantra of behavior is communication came straight from Ross Green, uh, who has a wonderful website called Lives in the Balance. Yeah. And uh, I read his book, The Explosive Child, when my youngest child was two and really quite explosive, um, and wished I had read it for my older son, um, who is four years older. And um, even though he doesn't explode, he implodes. Um, but Dr. Green has uh, a whole approach that he uses to help you understand what the source of the behaviors are. I think very often as parents, we um, and its teachers and people interacting with children in general, when you see a child misbehaving, it's really easy to attribute it to them being you know, having a thought that they're using the behavior to manipulate you. Right. I think it's really, really common. So people will say things like, my child is being oppositional. And I, I personally find saying things like that less helpful than saying, why is he being oppositional? Why is she refusing to get out of bed in the morning? What's going on with that? And if you can address the source 
of the problem, then you're more likely to see a reduction in the behaviors as opposed to when you just focus on why are you being, you know, instead of saying stop being oppositional, you can say, what's hard about this? Why are you having a hard time doing this? So that's, right. that's the framework um, that you start from. And, uh, and so Ross Green in his book, you know, talks about this uh, uh, approach where he first does something called the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, or the ALSUP. Um, and he has a worksheet on his website called uh, livesinthebalance.org. And he's got, you just go to the section called the paperwork. And uh, you can get, get the ALSUP there. And it's just a way of thinking through what situations are hard for my kid and what skills are required to make that situation be successful. And you, it's a very methodical process that you work your way through. And by the end of it, you have a pretty clear view of what skills you're your child really struggles with. And once you know that, then you can either start teaching them those skills or uh, making the environment a more friendly place for them so they can be successful. I love that you mentioned Ross Green. I feel like I might need to rename the podcast the Ross Green Fan Club Podcast because <laughs> so far I have mentioned him and the explosive child in every podcast that I've done to date and I'm sure in many in the future because this really is the key for parenting kids with ADHD and autism and other behaviors behavioral and developmental disorders to look at why the behavior is happening and address that because just punishing a behavior doesn't change the underlying reason for it and it's likely to come back again and again so I love that you've pointed that out in his website and I think that that also form will be great for parents a great exercise to really be able to start turn their thinking more towards how behaviors communication and what things they might be trying to communicate Yep. So, I mean, I, I think you and I probably are Ross Green's biggest fans. Yeah. <laughs> so one it's of the just things, so phenomenal. Oh, yeah. He, he I, and he really did completely change the way I think about my kids and and what they're struggling with. And uh, I do also find uh, I didn't talk about it a moment ago, but you know, the first step is figuring out what the problem are. But then the second uh, the problems are. But the second step is figuring out how are you going to solve the problem? And uh, one of the things I do find I do with a lot of my parents is um, use uh, the methodology that Martin Seligman, or Seligman, I don't know how to say his name, um, described in his book, The Optimistic Child. And he has uh, this uh, approach called the steps to problem solving. And the first step is say what the problem is. So once you understand what those underlying issues are from the ALSIP, then you can say what the problem is. And then together with your child, you can think about, that's the T in the steps, think about some possible solutions. And that's a, a brainstorming session where there are no wrong answers. So what you do is, you know, you write down what your child thinks a good solution would be. You write down what you think might be a good solution. There's no judgment and you're not allowed to say, well, that won't work. So you just write everything down in that step. And then the next step, the, the E, is for evaluate um, the 
you know, the things you came up with during the think about possible solutions. So you evaluate and that's where you get to say, this works really well for me, or this isn't such a good thing or, Oh, that's a lousy choice. Or I don't really care. I might work, might not. Um, and you have to say why during that phase, you know, why is it that it would work? Why is it that you think it wouldn't work? So that can open up a real discussion between parents and children. Um, and it sounds like, Green's collaborative problem solving process pretty much is brainstorming with your child and including them in the process. Exactly. And the thing I like about the steps is that it's a, it's an acronym you can use to remember, you know, what to do. I think a lot of people have a hard time during the thinking about the problems where you don't evaluate. And one of the things Ross Green says that I think is so smart is write it all down. So as you're brainstorming with your child, write down all those solutions. Kids love that. Absolutely. it gives them, it, it shows them that you're taking it seriously. And, and one of the things Ross Green does that I think is really smart is he'll, you know, when you get done sort of brainstorming at one phase, he'll read through all the options and then he'll say, can you think of anything else? And he keeps asking that question over and over again and repeating what you've, you've come up with so far uh, as a way of sort of reinforcing the ideas um, so that it's a very uh, open and friendly process. And I have to say the act of writing it down really does help kids um, uh, keep track of what's going on. So that can be a, a super helpful strategy. Yeah, you know, we found that really helpful too, just writing down concerns and a plan mm-hmm. of action to address them. I didn't know that until probably a couple of years ago, it would have been helpful for many years before that. But I was amazed by the difference that it made in my son's behavior versus just having a conversation. Oh, I understand this is happening at school. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to work with your teacher. That really didn't ease his anxiety like writing it down, sitting down with him and putting it on paper. It made a huge difference. You know, that's it's it's great that you say that because I was just remembering um, you're exactly right about that. There's something about the auditory or oral language that's so ephemeral where, you know, you say it and it's gone, you right. know, and and you could remember one thing about it and your child could remember another thing about it. But when you write it down, it forces you to be precise in a way that spoken language doesn't. And I was just remembering a story with my younger son. He was, uh, <laughs> he had left his water bottle at school and he really was worried that somebody was going to steal his water bottle. And so I sat down and sent an email to his teacher, but I, I made him come over and write, help me write the letter so he could see that I had written it out. Right. And the minute he saw that I had written it and sent it to his teacher, he was like, okay, I'm good. He could totally handle it. Yeah. But before that, he was like for an hour obsessing about this water bottle. Yeah, it's a great tool to really make it more real and concrete for our kids. We tell them all the time we're going to do something about their problems. We're going to help them in whatever way it might be. But when we write down that we're going to help them and exactly what we're going to do to help them, it really seems to feel more real for them and relieve a lot of anxiety around whatever that was that was happening. 
Yeah. And you know, it's funny, Penny, I was just remembering a client I was working with a number of years ago and, uh, her son, uh, couldn't speak. He could read, but he couldn't speak. And, uh, we kept talking about making a visual schedule for him because he really needed structure to navigate through his day. He needed that to feel secure. And she found that this client found that very difficult, um, to make this visual schedule and she resisted and resisted and resisted. And then one day she finally was just like, okay, fine, I'll do the visual schedule. (laughs) And when she did it, she was like, Oh my, (laughs) this is really helpful. Yeah. And I, I think what was happening, I was trying to figure out like why it was so hard. And I think she was making it, she was, she herself was being kind of perfectionistic about what a visual schedule should look like, Mm -hmm. you know? So what I used to do with my kids is I had a whiteboard in the front hall and I would just write the answers. You know, I'd write the schedule out on the front, uh, on the whiteboard. And it it was just, you know, okay, we're doing this, this, and this. And it it wasn't, you know, a big detailed schedule, but it sort of gave some, uh, you know, an outline of the day. Right. And the kids loved that. They just loved it. And it didn't have to be anything fancy. It literally was just like, you know, breakfast, go to park, lunch, go to library, dinner. It really wasn't that much, but it was, it was enough. And I, I, it's just, it it kind of amazes me how, um, how regulating kids find that just knowing what to expect. Yeah. And that's something I teach in my course too, is that you need to um, create as much structure and routine as you possibly can, because kids need to know what to expect. A lot of kids with ADHD and autism have a real strong need for that, but also, um, to have a family schedule and have it posted somewhere so that anytime they're wondering about something or what's coming next or when they're going to go to their friend's house, they can look and, um, have that kind of as a little bit of structure just throughout life in order to feel better. I think it makes a tremendous difference. You know, and actually this, this brings up another, um, thing, which I think as adults, we have better memories for, well, A, we already know what the usual day looks like. Like we know mm-hmm. first you wake up, then you eat breakfast, then you do stuff, then you eat lunch, then you do stuff, then you have dinner, you know, right. like we know the basic structure to, to the day. But I think kids very often don't even have that framework to work things into. And so they get overwhelmed with trying to remember all the things they're supposed to do. And, uh, and I think it's really easy to forget as an adult, you know, you know, that lunch is coming sometime around the middle of the day, but your kid really might not know that. Exactly. Or they might have trouble with the concept of time too. They could be time blind. (laughs) And, you know, this was a huge issue for my son. If I said, we're going to do that later to him later was some very, very far away thing. He had no concept of even how long something takes. Um, you know, I, I give the example about loading the dishwasher and how he always or emptying it and how he always complained about it was going to take forever and he never wanted to do this chore. And so I put a timer up one day and I showed him that it really does only take five minutes and five minutes is a short period of time. And so, you know, that whole time blindness and poor concept of time can really play 
into um, their need to have that schedule. But I think also going through the process of a family schedule and routines with your child, you know, developing them together helps them to learn those skills that are probably lagging as well, planning, organization, that sort of thing. You know, one, one, uh, one kind of pushback I get from families about that is that sometimes the schedule can change. Mm-hmm. And when the child sees the schedule and you have to make a change for some reason because life is filled with these things, then the kids get upset because you're changing the schedule. And um, that can be a hard thing to deal with in teaching your child to tolerate the fact that things do change and, um, you know, teaching them that it's okay that it's changing but we just have to think about it. I think I think what you just said uh, about the dishwasher is so true. You know, your kids think, oh, if this one thing has changed, that means everything else is changing, and now I have no idea what's going on. Right. And uh, you know, it, it's that that time blindness is a big big deal, especially with ADHD. It's a huge problem. These poor kids have no idea how long things will take, and some things do take them a lot longer than it takes you or me. Sure, and I think that plays into behavior. You know, if they have time blindness, then you might see particular behaviors from them, like my son's resistance and complaining to do the dishwasher to to complete his chore. Um, So, you know, I could have looked at that behavior as just oppositional or, um, you know, resistant, but instead I knew that there was something else underlying and that we needed to address that. So I think that's a really good example of behavior as communication and, and what that process looks like for parents to implement I, Penny, that's such a good point. And as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, my son actually uh, really resists taking a shower. And what he says the problem is, is that his showers take too long. And they do. (laughs) (laughs) We have a continuous hot water heater, and he literally takes an hour and a half I do not. And he has the time blindness thing you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've had to try things like putting the time timer in the bathroom. Right. So he can watch the passage of time. And my husband put a little reminder on the wall in the shower that says, you know, no thinking, just scrubbing. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, he, he just gets kind of lost in the process, huh? He really does. And he, he definitely, and you know what? It's a valid complaint. If every shower I took took me an hour and a half, I'd have a hard time. Yeah, <laughs> getting anything else done. And, you know, my son's old enough that I cannot, like, stand in there and coach him through the process. I'm mm-hmm. not, I can't be in the bathroom with him. Right. And, and so, actually, what we ended up doing, we had to... uh he wears a swimsuit in the in the shower, and I was coaching him through. And part of what was going on is it's so funny. Like you know, he would put too much shampoo in his hand, and then it took forever to rinse all that shampoo yeah. out of the air. And so we just you know, it's like little things can really get in your way, and you just don't realize what's going on in there. And it can you know, it looks oppositional. It looks you know, like he's, you know, being fussy about it. But, you know, an hour and a half is a really long time for a shower. It sure is. Yeah. And I think we have a lot of the same 
issue, although I think we're on the other side of that spectrum. My son wants to get in and get out super fast, and that often means without actually washing himself. (laughs) And he is old enough that I cannot be in there with him and coach him. And so we have started making him go and get right back in if it's evident that there was no shampoo in his hair and there was no washing. Um, So that can be, you know, a struggle. I think process in general is a struggle. I have thought about and considered a like a three-step checklist laminated that I could hang somewhere up in the shower so that he could make sure that he remembered each step because that's such a difficult thing for him and for a lot of these kids. Um, to get kind of back to behavior as communication, can you give our parents some examples of what sort of things behavior might be communicating to them? Oh, uh, well, I'll use the shower example. Um, My son actually has sensory challenges with water on being on his skin. So when he was little, uh, we would say, you know, it's time to take your bath. And he would scream and run away. (laughs) And, Mm. and, And now that he's old enough to tell me what's going on, back then he says that water on his skin literally felt like fire. Yeah. You know, and so it was incredibly aversive to him to take a bath, incredibly aversive. And it looked like he was just being a big pain. But it what was really going on is that his um, his skin, you know, he felt like we were setting him on fire. Of course, he was resisting that. So sensory issues can be a big deal. Yeah. Um, uh, You know, sometimes it's just they don't understand what to do. So here's an example Um, where I, you know, I, I mentioned my son is 15 and this was just three years ago. I said to him, um, Hey, you need to go get your gloves from the cabinet because it was winter and it was cold outside. And he stood and looked at me like it was just like a deer in the headlights. And I could have thought he was being oppositional, but instead I thought, Oh my goodness, I think he doesn't know what gloves are. And I looked at him and I said, do you know what gloves are? And he said, no. So I went to the cabinet and I pulled the gloves out and I said, these are gloves. And he said, oh, okay. And that was the end of that. So not understanding what it is that you're, um, you know, that the adult wants you to do. That's a real uh, challenge. You really do have to be careful about communicating things. Um, And that, you know, what the example I just gave was a a language issue. There can also be the task feels overwhelming issue. So, um, you know, if I said to my son, go clean your room, you know, that's that's a big job. Yes. (laughs) And it involves things like. Uh, taking the sheets off your bed and then putting them back on, you know, smoothing all the wrinkles out and putting them back on one layer at a time and then fluffing your pillow and putting your pillow on the bed and pulling your laundry um, off the floor and putting it in the laundry basket and putting the books back in the bookshelf and putting your shoes in the closet and, uh, you know, gathering all your papers and putting them in your backpack. Well, listen to all those steps I just gave you for cleaning your room. Yeah. So if I tell my son, go clean your room, he literally will go in there and just sort of stand there again, like a deer in the headlights. Yeah. But if I go in and I say, oh, pick up all your clothes and put them in the laundry basket, he is very happy to do that. 
So just breaking it down into those smaller steps is another um, place that can, you know, help a child, you know, be, quote, less oppositional. But really, it was just that the task was so huge, he didn't know how to break it down. So those are just some examples of, of places where I do see parents misinterpreting uh what their kid is doing is oppositionality. And the other thing I do want to mention is anxiety. So if a child is flooded by emotions, um, they're going to have a very hard time doing what you're asking them to do. And uh, I think you know about my, my favorite rumble rage cycle mm-hmm. um, that Brenda Smith-Miles described first in her book, uh, which is now called High Functioning Autism and Difficult Mot- Moments. It used to be called Asperger's Syndrome and Difficult Moments. And she, she developed it for kids with autism, but it actually applies to every human being on the planet. Um And, you know, the rumble rage cycle has, uh, you know, different phases. And, you know, when you're perfectly calm and somebody says, go get your gloves from the closet, then you're able to process what they said and, you know, go get your gloves from the closet. But if you don't understand what's going on or you're upset about something that somebody said to you earlier Mm -hmm. and you're feeling a little dysregulated about it, you might find it a little harder to go get there. You might not be able to hear. And one of the things I was stunned to learn, Penny, um, when I started studying uh, the notion of what I I have discussed described as the triune brain, which is first described in the 1960s. Um, but uh, the, the, that when you, you start getting overwhelmed, your ear canals actually literally swell shut. Wow. And so you literally cannot hear what's going on around you. And so, you know, if you're starting to get overwhelmed and your ear canals are swelling shut and people are saying, you must do this, and it sounds like it's coming from a million miles away, guess what? You're going to look oppositional. But actually, it's just emotional overwhelm. And so... And then if you don't, you know, if you can't calm the child down, then they're going to flip into, you know, this full on rage. And in that case, so often what we do, you know, your kid starts yelling at you or saying horrible things or doing horrible things. And you start, you know, you're like, calm down, you know, think about what you're doing. And they can't do that. They're they're in total fight or flight or freeze mode. And uh, they can't they can't calm down in that moment. So all you can do at that point is keep them safe. But very often we attribute, you know, that out of control behavior as volitional when it's really just total overwhelm. Yeah, overwhelm can be a really big issue. Um, We have that problem a lot in our family as well. And I think that that piece of information that you provided about the ear canals swelling shut. I had never heard that before, but that is a huge point of awareness for parents. I mean, that's really, um, a, a really good tool for us to remember, to be able to put ourselves in our kids' shoes. Yeah, I, when I discovered it, I, you know, when I, I first learned about it, I was like, oh, wow. And I yeah. don't know if as an adult you've experienced that feeling of total overwhelm. I have a few times in my adult life since I learned that. And it, you know that feeling that everything is becoming very distant mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're overwhelmed? That's like what you're in it a is. tunnel. Exactly. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a physiological thing. That's incredible. Yeah, really incredible. A couple other points that I wanted to talk about as far as what 
um, behavior might be signaling. Um, I have on my list auditory processing disorder. Um, That could certainly be something that makes it look like your child is refusing to listen to you or follow instructions um, or struggle in school. And also learning disabilities. You know, a lot of times when kids are struggling in school, it looks like they're oppositional or they're lazy or defiant or unmotivated. And so often all of that behavior is really pointing to something else. It's pointing to one of those things that you've already mentioned, or it could be pointing to a learning disability. Oh, Penny, that's such an important point. And, you know, that's why I like Ross Green's mantra of kids do well when they can. Mm -hmm. Because it really does make you step back and think, why can't they? And the learning disabilities is such a big deal. And, you know, kids kids don't like to be humiliated in front of their peers. No. And so if they're, you know, if they can, you know, they'll do things like, you know, you see all sorts of coping mechanisms. Some kids like just withdraw and don't engage with the class. Mm-hmm. Other kids will become the class clown to kind of distract people from the fact that they can't do whatever it is. Yeah. Um, other kids just refuse to do it and get sent to the principal's office. And guess what? Then they don't have to do whatever it was. Oh, <laughs> it's a exactly. brilliant strategy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's so many ways that schools traditionally address that sort of issue. Again, because they're looking at the surface behavior that are really ineffective, you know, they're, they're punishing, they're removing one thing that I get upset about for my son, he's in eighth grade. And at the middle school, they have a PBIS program, positive behavior intervention system or something like that. And they in order to go to the dance twice a year, you have to have met all the criteria for PBIS. And one of those is attendance. One of those is to have all A's and B's. Um, And so my son sometimes gets all A's and B's except for in PE, because he struggles with dressing out in this whole issue that we're having and so he gets a C or a D in PE because of that and so last semester he wanted to go to the dance and we didn't realize that it was tied to the PBIS um, plan and he was told that he couldn't and he was devastated you know and so again instead of addressing what's happening say in PE um, and helping him or instead of understanding that A's and B's and C's are sometimes the best that some kids can do. You know, they have this very strict policy that often leaves out kids that struggle. Um, So, you know, in a traditional school system, there's just so much of that, not understanding what the behavior is really trying to communicate, what the reasons are behind it. Um, And so, you know, I find myself stepping in and trying to explain that a lot, but, you know, they're not changing their policies. And and most of our public schools all over the country, I think, are still very traditional in a lot of their policies and, and systems and in the way that they teach. So that's definitely a point of contention for parents to try to educate schools and and teachers and administration about what your child is really um, saying what they're trying to tell us when they have those oppositional or lazy or lack of motivation moments. 
Well, and Penny, one of the things that really strikes me about that terrible story is that um, it's not a positive intervention to tell your child they cannot go to a social event at, at their school. That's not right. positive. That's, right. that's punishment. So, and that's what those systems end up being. You know, I think a positive behavior system in a school is a fantastic idea, but it ends up most of the time being implemented still as a disciplinary punishment system because of the way that they are leaving kids out due to behavior. That's a punishment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I mean, that's just something that. I have had to come to accept I can't change the schools and all the teachers and as much as I want to reform the entire education system <laughs> I cannot do that myself so I you know I just work on trying to educate teachers as much as I can about the specifics of my own child I'm not going into the school and and trying to teach them everything you know I'm just giving them insights into my son and what makes him tick and why he has particular behaviors so that we can help him to succeed instead of just trying to punish you know punishment is a system of fear and parenting through fear has historically and research shown oh that was a mouthful has shown (laughs) in research that it is a very negative thing for kids and can affect them into adulthood with their mental health. You know, they often develop anxiety or depression from being parented under a system of fear. So, you know, our schools are still unfortunately doing that. Well, and Penny, uh, in the case of ADHD, too, you have the rejection sensitive dysphoria yep. that so often accompanies Um, the diagnosis. And so, you know, when a typically developing child who does not have ADHD is punished, they are like, that sucks, you know, and and then they, you know, they they can get it together and deal with it. But a kid with ADHD is so much more sensitive, Mm -hmm. and they take it so much harder, that it, it, it trips them into that overwhelm so much easier. And yeah. so it, it, it's a double whammy for those poor kids because not only are they struggling to control their own behavior, but then they're being told they're not doing a good enough job and then they take the criticism so much harder. Right. And that, that made me think of another um, behavior that could be signaling some underlying issues, which is being emotionally sensitive, being um, very yeah. intense and inflexible. Um, you know, my son certainly has pretty immature emotional reactions to things as he's getting older, he's learning from others around him how to behave more, um, in line with his peers and more, um, appropriately, you know, he is taking that information in and trying to use it to, to, um, change his own behavior, which I think is pretty common in kids with high functioning autism or Asperger's, but, you know, those intensely emotional reactions look like our kids are just acting like a baby, right? Or they're being too sensitive, but what they're really telling us is how these things feel to them. You know, my son is a pretty intense liar a lot of times, um, (laughs) to put it very bluntly. You know, he can really spin a tall tale with the best of them. 
And what I came to realize over time is that he was really trying to communicate to me what those situations felt like to him. It wasn't necessarily that um, one of his peers almost killed him on the playground today. They didn't almost literally kill him, right? But that's what it felt like to him because he Mm. experiences the world more intensely. And understanding that and validating his feelings and his emotions rather than telling him to stop lying or criticizing him, I found to be much more effective. You know, we don't have the narrative around lying as much as we do about, you know, letting people know when you're telling how something felt to you versus the actual facts of what physically happened. Um, and in that way, we're helping him to improve that behavior of lying rather than just trying to punish it out of him because that wouldn't do any good. But, you know, that's that's one way that our kids are trying to communicate what things feel like, what their experience is. And I think that's really valuable insights for us. Oh, that's so beautiful, Penny. You know, uh, lying is a behavior that is communicating something. I, I mm-hmm. just, and I, a lot of parents get really bent out of shape about lying and yet they'll put their kids in these situations. Like they know their kid didn't brush their teeth and they'll say, did you brush your teeth? Right. And very often the child will think oh, I'm going to get in trouble if I say I didn't brush my teeth. So I'll just say I did and then I won't get in trouble. And so they're not thinking, oh, I'm lying. And they're not trying to be bad. They're just trying to think, how can I not get in trouble? Right. And how can this not be painful? Right. And so, you know, I often recommend to parents, don't even put your kid in that situation. Just say, wow, your teeth are really filthy. Yeah. You know, and so let them figure out that they need to go brush their teeth. Um, But don't put them in the situation of, you know, did you do your homework? Oh, yeah, I did my homework rather than, okay, let's let's check your homework and see how you did. Yeah, we often set our kids up to lie and it's really hard lesson. It it requires a ton of mindfulness in the moment to Mm -hmm. recognize that you're doing that and to not do it. I know last year at school. My son had an issue where um, he did something to to one of his peers in the hallway, and I don't even remember what it was. He might have shoved him when he said something mean to him or something. I can't even remember the specifics, but our school has cameras all (laughs) over the place (laughs) in the school building and on the bus, which is something that is new was new for him last year. And all of the these tall tales, you know. And expressing how he feels. Well, now there's video to to back it up, you know. And so he ended up in the vice principal's office and and he was trying to give him the opportunity to confess, you know, and to to tell the truth. And what they did was they set him up to lie because he was terrified of the punishment and the consequences if he if he told them the truth so he ended up getting in school suspension for lying he didn't yeah. even get in trouble for the issue in the hallway and he wouldn't have really had he confessed the truth of the matter right then and there but he was but told he could, could go home him? and think about it for the night and then come back and and tell them exactly what happened and he came back and he said I didn't do that, you know, and so he ended up getting punished all really because he was set up 
to lie. And that's, I think that's a really hard concept for most of us parents. You know, we're raised that lying is black and white and that there should definitely be a consequence and a punishment for lying, that it's disrespectful, that it's somehow a a character flaw. Um, And it's really hard. It took me a long time to really separate that from my own child and, and his needs specifically. Well, and thinking about what's motivating him to tell that lie, you know, what we are calling a lie. And I love your reframing of it as he's explaining to you how he experienced it. I think that's such a great mm-hmm. way to reframe that. I love it. Yeah, I think it's it, it has really made a big difference for us and our family. Um, and it kind of happened through some really big lies and some really embarrassing moments for me in schools. Um because I was believing him and supporting him and taking that into the school and challenging challenging them on it. And a lot of things turned out to not be the case. Mm. Um, so it was a really hard, painful lesson for me. But I had to ask myself, you know, what, what in the world is he going to gain from telling this story? What is mm-hmm. his perceived outcome? And in doing so, you know, you're able to realize why it's happening and you're better able to address it and prevent it. You know, if I punish him for for lying to me about something that happened at school, that's not going to help him with that discomfort in the moment and being able to communicate accurately or being able to control his emotions in that moment so that there's nothing really to communicate or lie about. So I think, you know, it's a process for parents to learn that and get there, but it's super valuable to really be able to reframe um, what we consider lying. You know, Penny, I, (laughs) my uh, son is at a non-public school and one of the mantras of that school is uh, what happens at school stays at school. So Mm. they actually would not, you know, if he had a world-class meltdown about something, they would tell me, you know, that, that it had happened, but they were very explicit that there should be no repercussions at home. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, it was such a relief to me, such a relief to be able to just, you know, say, wow, sounds like you had a really hard day at school instead of, all right, let's talk about the repercussions of your hard day at school because that exactly. just made him shut off with me. He didn't want to talk to me and that that was destroying our relationship, which I really didn't like. Right. And you really are shutting your kids down when you accuse them of lying every time they talk to you. Right. Um, you're teaching them that they should not come and talk to you about these things. And that's really an unfortunate side effect, so to speak of that. So I think it's really a very powerful thing to really reframe that. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that it's super difficult, but it's really crucial. Mm -hmm. Yep. So do you have any last thoughts about behavior as communication for our listeners? Um, you know, I didn't finish the steps and I just, I'm just going to, uh, go through the remaining ones. So we talked about saying what the problem is, thinking through 
probable solutions or possible solutions, evaluating the solutions. The next step is the P, which is picking the best solution. So for that one, you have to pick a solution that's the best for everybody. So you can't pick a solution that works great for one person and bad for another person. So sometimes the best you can do is a solution where everybody's like, yeah, okay, that might work. Um, and that might be the best you can do. But you pick one solution, and then the last, this, it's not a step, it's steps, which is see what happens. So, you know, you pick your, your approach, and then you say, okay, we're going to try that for a day or two, and then we're going to meet again in two days and see how it goes. Right. Um, so uh, that reevaluation process, I always say the first thing you try is not going to work. <laughs> and right. so, um, so then you just come back and you've gathered more data about what does and does not work, and you can go through that process again. So I, I really like that um, you know, acronym for thinking about how to, to do the collaborative problem solving. Yeah, and I'll be sure to put that in the show notes, too, on the website as well. So anybody who wants to get that information and try to follow it in their own families can do so. And Penny, I did want to mention, um, I, I teach a parenting class, which was developed by um, Dan Shapiro, and he has just finished a book called Parent-Child Journey, um, in which he lays out uh, a lot of uh, the techniques he's learned for helping kids learn to be the best versions of themselves, but also for parents to learn how to be the best versions of themselves with their kids. Right. And um, it's a really wonderful book. I can't say enough good things about it. And if you go to his website at parentchildjourney.com, you'll see the book for sale there. Okay. Um, and it's, it's beautifully illustrated. And he's actually uh, working on a children's book version of it. Um, so you can read it with your child and, and help them know what you're doing as you're working Very your cool. way through it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice. But I, a lot of what I learned, like those steps, you know, combining the Ross Green approach with the Martin Seligman approach, um, that, that came straight from Dr. Shapiro. And, uh, you know, he also talks about time in, which is one of my favorite strategies, um, on that site. It's also called special time by Russell Barkley and, um, and others. So anyway, it's, I just wanted to give a shout out to that because that communication uh, section uh, is, I think, the third uh, chapter in that book. And, you know, just thinking about all the ways things can go wrong. I think that book is a really nice way to think about all the things that could go wrong and how to deal with them. Yeah. And I'll be sure to list all of the authors and books and websites that you have talked about today in the show notes as well. Um, so I just want to, I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today and sharing your vast amount of knowledge, um, about kids with ADHD and autism and behavioral and developmental disorders. It's always very enlightening to me to have conversations with you. I've learned so much myself self. Kids do well if they can is kind of where I parent from and where I teach others to parent from. And, and I learned that from you and from Ross Green. So I'm really thankful just for the last little bit here, if you will share where our listeners can find you online and any other resources for yourself that you want to share, let them know where they can reach out to you. Um, okay, well, my company, as you said at the beginning, is Guiding Exceptional Parents, and my website is, <laughs> shockingly, guidingexceptionalparents.com. Perfect. Um, 
And on my website, you'll find uh, information about me, contact information. I have a Facebook page. I, I tweet. I, um, I have a LinkedIn profile. I also have a blog, and that's linked to, um, from my website, you'll see uh, one of the tabs is called Read. And so you can click on that, and you'll see some articles I've written and some uh, blogs I've done. I do a lot of blogs for you, Penny, um, for you parenting too. ADHD and autism. Um, and I really appreciate that you've given me that, uh, that venue to uh, raise issues that I bump into with my families. Um, I found it very helpful to have, um, you know, to have <laughs> the, the motivation to write the things up that I see my families encountering so often. Um, right. Sometimes, you know, it's nice to just say, hey, go read this article, because, you know, I think a lot about what I write. And so I can include more than when I'm just talking to someone. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, but that's my website is the best place to sort of link into all that stuff uh, about me. So again, that's guidingexceptionalparents.com. And I'm Sarah Wayland. That's great. And I really encourage everyone to go to Sarah's website and check out her work. Um, like I said, she has a really great understanding of our special needs kids and is a fantastic resource. And with that, I'm going to conclude today's podcast. I thank you for joining me and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.